0: people who give to charity are happier. And this is true pretty much across all income levels. A friend noted that there's a bit of a chicken and egg question, do happy people give more, or do people who give more, are they happier, right? And I don't know the answer. What I know is that there's a direct correlation. And then also that people who give more relative to income report being even happier. And all of this is really what I see with the donors we work with, the reasons behind their giving, and really the joy they get out of the process of giving.
1: Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset Show. This is a podcast about the financial, money, and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Doug Benson, Senior Vice President and In-House Counsel at Foundation for the Carolinas. Doug oversees the legal, regulatory, and compliance issues at the foundation and co-leads the foundation's philanthropic advancement team. Doug works with donors and their professional advisors to coordinate the planning, negotiation, and acceptance of traditional and complex gifts, including gifts of closely held business interests, real estate, and other non-cash assets. Doug is a frequent speaker on a broad range of charitable and estate planning topics, including charitable gifts of closely held business interests, ethical considerations of nonprofit board service, plan giving, board governance, and tax-exempt entities. Since joining the foundation, Doug has played a key role in facilitating charitable gifts of non-cash assets in excess of $250 million. He also regularly works with donors and their families in designing and implementing planned gifts. Listen in and hear how Doug helps families meet their philanthropic goals and make an impact for generations to come. Hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the pleasure of being with Doug Benson, Senior Vice President and In-House Counsel at Foundation for the Carolinas, And as I mentioned in the intro, he is a longtime friend of mine. We date back to uh, grade school. So thanks for joining us today, Doug.
0: Thank you for having me on, Larry. I'm really excited to be here today.
1: It's awesome to have you and share your knowledge with our listeners. So let's start from the beginning. Tell us about your path to the foundation for the Carolinas. How did you get here?
0: Like a lot of people, Larry, my path to the foundation was not a direct path. I uh, went to law school, and after law school, worked as an a estate planning and tax planning attorney. Two great firms, Moore and Van Allen in Charlotte, and Sutherland in D.C. And during that time, I learned a lot about practicing law and you know how to be an attorney. And about 11 years ago, and as these things happen, one of the partners that I worked with died very unexpectedly and very suddenly. And it was one of those points in life that leads to a lot of reflection. I started asking whether D.C. was right for my family. You know, did I want to continue to practice law at a big firm? And I had two young daughters, and the question was, was I happy with my work-life balance? And my wife and I did a lot of soul-searching, ended up back in Charlotte, North Carolina. And as these paths happen, I found out about this job posting, posting ultimately right before it closed from a friend who I wouldn't have expected would be the person who told me. That was nine years ago. And the one thing I'd add is, you know, people think of charities and I don't think they think of them as these multifaceted organizations with complex legal issues, but you'd really be surprised. It's been qu- quite the nine years and a great adventure.
1: That's awesome. And I think your story fits in very well with our title of our show, Midland Money Mindset, because I think the fact that you spent the time looking at your mindset and reflecting, you know, what was important to you is, I think, is something that most business people, entrepreneurs, and anybody really should be thinking about as an important factor in what they want to do, how they want to do it, and where they want to do it. It's key. Absolutely. So Foundation for the Carolinas, it's a community foundation. It's something that I was not very, very familiar with until we've had conversations about it. What does that mean? What is a community foundation?
0: Yeah, that that's a great question, and, and I would be if I were in uh, my position that I was in at a law firm, I probably was in the same boat. I, I don't think I really understood. I'll do a really quick history on this. In 1914, the first community foundation was created. It's the Cleveland Foundation. And the idea was, can we create a single pool of charitable resources from all citizens? And can we then use them, put them in a permanent trust, and for the idea for the betterment of the community, right? So the idea is a, a true community trust concept. That's what, how they got organized. You know, fast forward 100-plus years, and there's almost 800 community foundations in the United States. I'm going to tell you a little more about them, but we have this saying in the community foundation world, and I'm sure we're not alone. If you know one community foundation, then you know one community foundation. We are all very different. But what I'd say the common threads are, we're all public charities, right? And we're all focused on specific geographic areas. For example, Foundation for the Carolinas, where I work, is located in Charlotte, North Carolina. It serves a 13-county region around the Charlotte area. And really, community foundations work with individuals. They work with nonprofits and they work with corporations. And really, our goal is to help each of those individuals carry out their philanthropy. Uh, What you'll see most commonly in that, you'll see them do it through kinds of funds, donor advised funds, which I hope we'll talk about a little later today, scholarship funds, endowments, things that you might be familiar with, but they offer them. The last thing I'd say that's really critical with community foundations and what sets them apart maybe from others is there's really a role for um, civic leadership. And by civic leadership, I really mean the idea that there are large community problems. And the idea is how do we gather people together from diverse groups throughout the community to really explore those issues and help develop and implement solutions? And really, those solutions often involve a variety of community players, corporations, government. As an example, some of the things that we've worked on in recent years include affordable housing. Right. That's that's obviously been a critical issue. Economic opportunity. And certainly last year, we were involved in a number of COVID-related programs as well. So hopefully that's helpful and gives you a little bit of sense of what community foundations do. Yeah. So, I
1: mean, me being on Long Island, would I never ever, unless I moved or had a residence in Carolina, would I not ever work with the foundation for the Carolinas? Or is that something that's still possible if I wanted to have an impact
0: there, let's say? for whatever reason. So first, let me say, community foundations, I think, are one of the last places where we are truly, even though we don't necessarily have working relationship, pretty good partners with folks in other geographies. So I often refer people to their local community foundation to at least give them an opportunity. Um, that said, because we're so different, there are times I've worked with people well outside of a region because perhaps we are lucky enough to be the sixth largest community foundation and every community, f- community foundation doesn't necessarily have in-house know, counsel. So sometimes I'll be able to help folks but in your case, for example, you have the Long Island Community Foundation nearby. It's an affiliate of the New York Community Trust, which is interestingly one of the top five community foundations by size. So I would probably, if someone called me from Long Island, I'd probably connect them there. But we've certainly helped people out of the region and spend a lot of time talking through really fun, charitable, and complex charitable issues with people from all over the country. So right.
1: Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is that many people think that, or people make charitable donations, well, I should say, many people think that people make charitable donations simply because of tax deductions, and I don't believe that that's necessarily the case. What do you see as the primary motivator? Because you're you're working with people all day long who want to make an impact, who want to make donations. Is it really because of the tax deductions or are there other motivations there typically?
0: So I was just talking about this with a colleague the other day, and I think it's largely a misconception that people are motivated primarily because of their tax deduction. There's a number of studies out there, and the motives vary, but some of the key motives are people certainly believe in the mission of an organization. They want to give back to the community. They want to create a legacy. You know, They believe their gift can make a difference. But one of the most interesting ties when it comes to charitable giving, and when I think about the Midland Money Mindset, I think it's such a critical thing to talk about, is the tie between charitable giving and happiness, right? People who give to charity are happier, and this is true pretty much across all income levels you know, a friend noted that this is a bit of a chicken and egg question Do happy people give more or to people who give more, are they happier? Right. And I don't know the answer, but What I know is that there's a direct correlation. And then also that people who give more relative to income report being even happier. And all of this is really what I see with the donors we work with, the reasons behind their giving and really the joy they get out of the process of giving. So Now, that's not to say, let me take a step aside, it's not to say tax savings aren't a factor, right? The way I like to look at it is, and I've spent a great deal of my career uh, helping people give in a tax-efficient manner, but the way I like to look at it is all the people who give are really altruistic. They really have a passion to help, but the tax savings really allow them to amplify their giving and give even more.
1: Right, And it's funny, I think where this stems from was a rabbi, I think, that I heard say this a long time ago. But it's resonated and stuck with me, and I've used it time and time again. And, you know, there used to be this old adage, you know, give until it hurts. People used to say, hey, give until it hurts. And like I said, I think it was a rabbi that said it once, and he said, we got it all wrong. That's not really what it's all about. You should give until it feels good. And I've used that. Time and time again, when I've done philanthropic efforts trying to raise money and I say, listen, everybody has their own capacity to give, but give until it feels good because then you're going to really make a difference because you're going to make a difference for somebody else and you're making a difference for yourself because you're feeling good about what you're doing.
0: Absolutely. And and the only thing I'd add is that uh, there was a chairman of the first board that I sat on and he used to always say, the more I've given in my life, the wealthier I've become, right? He also always said that. And I think, you know, I used to think that, you know, of course you're wealthier and you're giving more, but I also think there's a magic to charitable giving, the way it causes you to network, the opportunities it opens up to work with other people. Think of all the people you've met and doing the good in your life. And so I want people to lead with the altruistic, but there's tax savings and there's other benefits to giving too. And, 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 you know, again, find very few people who give out of the generosity of their heart who don't end up getting back from that as much as they give.
1: Yeah, we call those strategic byproducts, right? Absolutely. So what are the top ways that individuals can make a charitable donation? I mean, are there certain methods that are more impactful than others that make a bigger difference that they should be considering over other methods, for example?
0: I'm going to take a little bit of time to talk about three briefly. But what I want to first say is it's a great time to mention for those who are listening that uh, the information I'm sharing does not represent tax or legal advice. You should consult with your accountant or tax advisor as the impact to any gift. We joke about that; that we say that all the time. We always say we're brainstorming with our donors, right? But what I'm telling you is are things I want you to think about. Um, if you're an advisor for your clients, and if you're an individual, you know, for yourself. Sure. Total giving in the United States, you know, let's start with that was 450 billion the last year it was measured, right? And individuals account for over 300 billion of that. And as you might have guessed, the majority of that giving is done in the form of cash right? Whether it's a check, actual cash, credit card. And it's an easy way to give, but it's also the least tax efficient way to give. So the first thing I want to stress is one of the best ideas for charitable giving is giving appreciated publicly traded stock. I always use the same examples, Apple and Amazon, right? There are people out there who bought it years ago into a stock. The stock is appreciated greatly and they're charitable and they're planning to give. And you know, gifting those securities directly to charity as opposed to giving cash provides two significant benefits. First, the donor's going to get themselves a charitable deduction equal to the value of the stock on the day and there's a way to value it, but that's not really terribly important. But the additional thing is the charity can sell that stock, right? And then not pay capital gains. And so if you compare the situation, if you imagine someone with, you know, it doesn't have to be a big number, but let's just let's just say, you know, $1,000 of stock in Amazon and it is highly appreciated, $1,000 of cash and they're trying to figure out how to give that $1,000 If they give it in the stock, what they're going to find is two things. One, the donor who gives the stock is going to end up with a bigger deduction. And I'm sorry, I I kind of jumped ahead a little bit. Let's assume that they're going to sell that stock. That they might sell that stock, right, and give the proceeds, really, as opposed to as opposed to giving the um, the stock. If they sell the stock and give the proceeds, right, versus giving the stock, they're going to get a bigger deduction, right, because they're going to have to pay taxes on that. In addition, charity is going to end up with more money in its hand right and so who doesn't want to win where they end up with a better tax deduction charity ends up with more dollars and in the end you've given you know you've used the same asset now you might talk to a donor and say well i really like my stock i don't want to give away the stock and the one thing i'd say there is again imagine they have stock and they have cash right and this is really where it comes into play they could give that stock away and then repurchase it right and mm-hmm. what they're really doing is they're allowing that low basis right to be be stock to be given away and purchase it again with a new basis at the current value. It really sets them up for reduced taxes later, and and again benefits charity the way we talked about. And you probably see that a lot.
1: Yeah, we recently had I, I sit on a board of a uh, charity out here on Long Island, and we recently had somebody who donated appreciated stock, and he was very pleased with it because he had bought it right at the beginning of 2020, and he had a huge appreciation. And it was fine. He was more than happy to donate the stock. He said, listen, you guys can benefit from my benefits. And he was thrilled because he didn't have to write a check. He just utilized this huge gain that he had in these securities and used that as his donation to our organization. And then we ultimately went ahead and sold it. There was no tax ramifications for doing that as the nonprofit. And then we had the cash that we were able to now utilize towards the project that we're uh, working on. So it's a win-win.
0: It is. and, And what I'd add on that is, you know, there are also opportunities at times to partner. Some charities aren't going to be able to accept stock gifts, right? They're smaller and there are opportunities to partner with organizations like community foundations, potentially make those gifts of stock and then have the cash end up in the charity's hand. But two more quick things I'd love to talk about. One of them is IRA qualified charitable distributions, right? And this is only going to impact a limited group of people, but for the individuals it impacts, the opportunity is too big not to talk about it. So if you have a client who is reached the age of 70 and a half and they have an IRA and they're charitably minded, they might consider using their IRA to make charitable gifts. We always think of retirement accounts and IRAs as really an asset to gift at death. There's some great reasons to do that. But for those individuals who qualify, they can make tax-free distributions directly from their IRA to pu- most public charities up to a hundred thousand dollars per year if you have two married couple both over that age right they can each make a hundred thousand if they each have an IRA so that's two hundred thousand the great part is those qualified distributions not only don't end up rolling in an income but they also satisfy required minimum distributions which come in place at age 72.
1: So just to ask you a question there, you said that for the QCD, just for our listeners, that starts at 70 and a half, even though the requirement of distributions now don't start until 72.
0: That's right. The secure I came in last year and separated those two, they'd both been 70 and a half. So you do have that year and a half in between, which people ask the question, but I guess the way I look at it is if you're going to make those charitable gifts anyway, the IRA is still a great place to make the gifts because... It means there's less in the IRA that'll be taxed later, as opposed to, for example, the cash that you have, right? Or even securities that might end up being, you'll end up having capital gains on them later. It's sort of usually the worst asset for tax purposes. It's also a really good opportunity for people who, because of the increased standard deduction, don't itemize, right? So if you don't itemize in 2021, you know, there's a standard deduction of $25,100, and let's say you guys don't have deductions that would get you up there. By using the qualified charitable distribution, you're able to get the same or very substantially similar benefit to taking a deduction where you wouldn't have been able to anyway. So, again, for that group, I think who qualify, it's an important vehicle. Sure. The last thing I just want to mention quickly, and I'd be remiss not to mention it, is for closely held business owners, making a gift of their business before a potential sale or liquidation event can be extremely beneficial. Many of the advantages are similar to those with publicly traded securities. Um, but the unique part is we, we see so many business owners who created a business out of nothing, right? Really sweat equity, hard work, and it's more money than they ever thought they'd have. And they see a liquidation coming uh, event coming up and they're seeing millions of dollars they never expected. And they're making gifts of 10% of it beforehand to a charity um, like Foundation for the Carolinas. And then those gifts, right, when the businesses sold or liquidates, really create a charitable pool where you can do great work in the community. We've seen $250 million plus of those gifts in my time at the foundation. It's a growing area across the country. And again, for a business owner, it's something to think about, particularly with a approaching liquidation event.
1: Sure. Yeah. Those are great ways to turn your lifetime business into a a charitable endeavor, if you will. So let's pivot for a second here. You, You mentioned it a little earlier, and we've heard a lot about donor-advised funds in recent years, and what are they and how do they work? I know we've heard a lot about it, but I I don't know that a lot of listeners are aware about what they are and how they work.
0: Yeah. I wish I knew a lot more about donor-advised funds when I was still in private practice and advising clients. You'll see a lot of different definitions of donor-advised funds, but essentially, they're charitable investment accounts that allow you and usually your family to be strategic about your charitable giving. How can you be strategic? Well, you can make a gift today, right, cash, marketable securities, or other assets to your donor-advised fund. You then get a a deduction immediately as though, because the organization offering a donor-advised fund is a public charity, so it's just as though you've given a gift to charity. And then the beauty is the assets are then held in an account. They can be invested tax-free in that account. And then you can recommend grants over time to any public charity, typically any public charity in the United States, right? And so in a lot of ways, if you're familiar with a private foundation, you know, donor advised funds allow a lot of the opportunity of a private foundation, right? Except that you get a more favorable tax treatment because of the public charity status and you don't have the setup costs and administration. So when some people will say that they've really democratized giving a lot more people to, to give strategically, when I say democratized, I mean, donor advised funds can typically be set up with $10,000 or less. Right, and depending where you are, you might not even need to maintain that balance. So, if you think about if you're giving that much or more every year, it might be a great vehicle to utilize. One of the really nice things about donor advised funds is, let's imagine you give twenty thousand dollars a year through your donor advised funding. you send that to thirty charities. Right, the beauty of the donor advised fund is you get a single tax receipt from the community foundation or sponsoring organization, but you've still supported the same thirty charities. And how have you done it? Probably in your own name. Right, you can create You can typically name them for your family. You guys might be able to have the Sprung Family Donor Advised Fund, right? And so when the charity sees it, it knows it's coming from you. It literally has an acknowledgement saying you're the advisor so they can contact you. And I find when I give most people, most organizations do send me the same kind of thank you letter letting me know. But it really simplifies when it's tax time. I've got literally one tax receipt. The one other thing I'd add is you can typically incorporate donor advised funds into your legacy planning, your plan giving, if you will. And so we have a lot of people who will provide that their IRA or their insurance policy or you know a bequest in a in a will pours over their donor advised fund. And then from that donor advised fund, we can work with them on a on a legacy plan that really benefits the charities they want to. Why is that helpful? Well, I was an estate planning attorney, and I will say one of the things which I love doing, but also hated doing was someone would come in and they'd have 10 charities listed, and they'd want to change four of them, right? And it sounds like an easy change, but as an attorney, my job is to make sure on that republication of that codicil that the entire will works again or the entire trust works again. And so there's no really easy way to do it in an efficient way for the client. But in this case, you've named your donor advised fund, and you can work with a partner like myself and then continue to make changes through time and not have to worry about the billable hours and the work involved, and really work with someone who's focused on Helping you figure out what you want to do charitably and get you to the right place.
1: That's a great point. I, I think, you know, the the easier you can make updating your estate plan, the, the better. The less you have to go in and physically change it, the better. The less questions that'll get raised, et cetera, down the road. Now, to me, donor advised funds sound like a great tool for a family, even one that's not looking to give 250, half a million, million plus It seems to me like it's a great tool, even for those that are looking to give several thousand dollars regularly, to utilize it as a tool or as a vehicle to donate to where they want to donate, but more importantly, use it as an educational platform for their kids to get them involved in the process. Is that a fair assessment?
0: That is. We actually see a number of our donors, as the kids get older, who will actually create donor funds for their individual children for their giving. And, you know, involving your children in giving is such a critical thing that a parent can do. It's such a valuable, really, really uh, legacy in va- to hand down. And it's never too early to get your children involved. And let me just walk up what we see, three things we see. First one, something that I know that you are familiar with because I feel like I've seen you post on social media about it. And for young kids, we talk about that spend, save, give jar, Right. Right. It's such a great visual and such a great way to teach kids. And for those who aren't familiar, it's as easy as it sounds, right? It's the idea of uh, three jars, one spend, one save, one give, and then encouraging children when they receive, doesn't matter if it's birthday money or allowance or they watch the neighbor's dog, to put something in each jar. A lot of people will try to do 10% on the give. It's sort of easy to explain to kids. You can teach them some math while you're at it. right? And then as that money grows you can talk to the kids and say, what do you want to do with that, right? And you're starting to have them think about charity and giving. And often there's a great opportunity there to volunteer as a family too, right? If it's it's the Humane Society, there may be opportunities or a school. And so it's really bringing this early idea of giving right to children in a way that's accessible. When they get a little bit older, we'll talk about sometimes is giving them an opportunity to give on some of your discretionary giving, right? So let's say you give money every year And maybe you say to your kids, hey, and it doesn't really matter the amount, this year, I'd love for you to tell me where you'd like to support $200 of our giving. And maybe ask them to do a little research and come and make a presentation or at least tell you why they're passionate about it. It's Again, it's that next step. It's the evolving step. It's it's good family time together, and it's a great way to really bring them in the mix. And then taking that the next step is where we sort of came into this question, if you've brought your kids along there. A donor-advised fund may be a great, great place to go next. We have people who, at 18, will who have, who have larger donor-advised funds, will create smaller ones for their children, right? Mm-hmm. And in addition to creating that habit of giving, right, which will last a lifetime, you're giving them some social capital, too, right? Something that allows them, when you're young and you give at any meaningful level, people are going to reach out to you. You're going to get opportunities to be on boards, to be involved. And so it benefits everyone involved. And it's a lot of fun. And, and by the way, children who learn giving from their parents are far more likely to teach their children and give more, right? It's it's just yeah. such a great thing to do.
1: It becomes like that endless feedback loop, right? Where you start it off and you kick it off and it keeps going. One of the things that we keep talking about is legacy, which we've seen, I'm sure you see it quite frequently, where it's a very important thing to people to leave the world a better place, different having something to show for it when they're no longer here. Besides the donor advised fun route, which we just discussed, how else are you seeing people accomplish leaving a legacy?
0: Legacy, whenever I hear the term, I always think of the same thing. I'm in the space and I hear legacy all the time. And I always think of the end of Hamilton. And for those who may not remember it, it's uh, right before Hamilton is shot by Aaron Burr. He says, legacy, what's a legacy? Planting seeds in a garden that you'll never get to see right and such a nice visual and obviously Hamilton's so popular and hopefully this will inspire people to go back and listen to the <laughs> soundtrack again or watch it on TV but it really is this idea it's this idea of creating something for tomorrow that will outlive you and really trends show people are thinking about legacy way earlier you know we work with donors and I guess the things we often do is we want to help them determine what philanthropy means to them. Let's take a step back. I go back to my life as an estate playing attorney and I was like, where do you want to give your money? Right. But I didn't have the time because there were so many other issues to talk about what philanthropy means to the individual. Right. And then it's about crafting a plan that allows them to give with purpose and impact. Right. So it's not just maybe they want to give to a charity, but why are they passionate about the charity? Is there a specific program that's involved? Have they talked to the charity? Are there ways, you know, they can really maximize that gift? And then also, do they want to engage their family? So we'll walk through a variety of exercises. You know, sometimes children are involved, sometimes they aren't. But really, for me, it's it's a blank slate out there with your dollars. You have charitable dollars in mind. Do you want to give it outright to an organization? Do you want to create an endowment that'll last them forever? Do you want to create a scholarship because somebody helped you along the way? Right? Do you want your children to take over your donor advised fund when you're done? Be the advisor and give. And if so, are there things that are important for you to give to? Maybe there are. Maybe there are certain causes during your lifetime. The beauty is there's so many things that people can do. And for us, when I say this, both for my organization but community foundations in general, it's finding out what brings passion to people and getting them there. Which is one of the unique things that makes us different from other charities. We're really about bringing out other people's passion and getting them there and less about any individual cause. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, legacy means very different things to different people. It could be a very different thing to person A and completely different to person B. And it's just uncovering what their passions are. Can you share, have there been any cool ways, like unique ways that you've seen people leave a legacy that you're like, wow, I never even thought about
0: that. And this is great idea. I'll tell you a quick story that I always find to be very inspirational. And then I'll tell you something that, you know, you don't need huge dollars to do. So the inspirational story is we have two donors who were teachers, right? And you think of teachers and, and you say, well, how are teachers leaving a legacy? And like so many of our donors, they lived a very simple life, right? They did. They, in their case, they didn't spend a lot of money and they didn't have children. And at death, they actually accumulated a fair amount of wealth. And what they decided to do with that is create a scholarship because education was so important to them, right? And so here's two teachers with the better part of a million dollars at death, creating a scholarship that's going to, you know, help the next generation and really change other people's lives. So I share that because, again, it's a story that people can imagine, that many people can imagine relating to. But but on an even taking it down one scale from there, you know, there is a very easy way to give and create what what I think is a very meaningful legacy. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say there's an organization you support every year. Perhaps for you, it's the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I know it's extremely important to you, and right. you're giving. And let's say every year you give them five thousand dollars, right? Just just to do a mathematical example. And normally, when you're doing that every year, when you pass, right, they don't have that five thousand dollars anymore, and your ability to support them in perpetuity is sort of gone. But one thing we'll see people do is take $100,000, right? They'll take it out of their retirement accounts. They're giving a lot to their children and they'll carve out that piece and they'll have it put in an endowment with us, right? And every year that endowment will send out this idea of spendable amount, think of it as income and let's call it 5% because that's what it most traditionally is. And so each year, right, you're going to see AFSP get that $5,000 in your name. So what does that mean? You continue to show up, right, on their roles as an important giver, and they're not looking for someone, you know, sort of fill that gap when the individual's gone. And again, we talk about accessibility. It's there for many, many people, right? That's something they can carve out even after they take care of their children, even after they, they take care of other organizations too. And so I use that as an example because it feels very attainable. Now, you can always add zeros and multiply, and we see people right. do it in much larger numbers, but I think that's great. The one other thing I'd share is, and this is really a community foundation issue, which I think is helpful, is that there are funds out there, going back to that community trust concept, that allow the community to do good work in your name afterwards, right? Allow them to deal with evolving needs. We have eight what we call community impact funds people can give to. And when you have these moments, right, COVID, right, and when you talk about equity and social justice and economic opportunity. Ten years ago, no one talked about these things the way they do now. No one focused on solving these issues the True. way they do now. And so while you can all, you can certainly create a fund in your name, you can also be part of that larger collective, right? I go back to that idea. And if you think of it, $10 million is great, and it's great to come from one donor, right? But if 100 donors give $100,000, it's $10 million too. right? And so there are so many ways to have that impact, and it doesn't have to be column A or column B, right? If you have $200,000, $100,000 to the community and $100,000 to your favorite charity, right? That's the beauty of getting together and talking through these things. What's important to you? How do you create your own legacy? And then how do you have a greater impact on the community going forward?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that all great points and I think what the takeaway I got from this is you don't need seven or eight figures to really make an impact or a donation or start thinking about being charitable you can do it even at a smaller level and if we had many more people thinking about this at a smaller level collectively we're making a huge impact right so i guess the question is do you find that people are hesitant about approaching you approaching other charities because they don't feel like they have that seven or eight figures and they can't make that impact. How do you get them over that hurdle?
0: Well, the first hurdle we have is the same hurdle I had as an estate planning attorney, and it's nobody wants to discuss their own mortality, right? right. So, so uh, we have to get through that hurdle first.
1: All well, the unsigned documents, yeah. right? <laughs>
0: that, that's right. And somehow they always need to be signed before that vacation, right? <laughs> Three years after they were in draft form, notwithstanding all the flights they've taken in between. There you go. But I digress. I think we see some of that, but I think that the people that we're put in touch with more and more really are already charitably minded. I'm in a fortunate place where if someone's coming to me, they're in this mindset, right? Going back to the word, they want to do something and then we can be open to it. One of the things that we do is really try to share the stories, right? Share what we're seeing. We certainly share the big stories. We have some great stories of people who have given tens of millions of dollars. We also have much more modest stories, stories of people who I always joke they fall in three camps: people whose children have enough, people who don't have children, and people who don't like their children. Right? Those are the those are the three the three groups. Right. But in all cases, we see people coming in at more modest levels and and making a difference, and that inspires people. And hopefully, things like this, like your podcast, will reach people and they'll realize they don't have to. I mean, the other thing I think that makes people nervous about giving and hopefully it's something that a community foundation can help with is, I think people feel like once they commit to a charity, even if technically a planned gift is always revocable and they could always undo it, most people are very intimidated by the idea of making a change, right? If I told an organization I'm giving them money, it almost doesn't matter how they do. And by the way, we hope, right, that they will work with their donors, right? That's such an important piece for charities is to really value those relationships and embrace them. But with us, because you're working through a, public charity whose goal is to help you get to, thir- to to different charities, you can come in and feel comfortable making that change. And when you're ready, tell, tell the organization. But until then, let's keep changing it up. Let's figure out where your passion is. Let's see how that moves over time. And as you find organizations that you care about and that do a good job stewarding you, we'll get you to the right place.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's what I want to get out of this and get in people's heads is that you don't need the seven or eight or nine figures in order to really make an impact. If we collectively identify something that we're passionate about and everybody does that, we'll have a greater impact. And like we said earlier, you'll create this endless feedback loop, whether it's with your kids, your grandkids, whomever to show how you are charitably inclined and inevitably that will sink in and it will move on to the next generation. And if we continue to do that, all these great organizations and there are so many of them right There's so many great not for profits out there that are doing great work that could use dollars to even be more successful and do more work that we could all collectively have a huge impact so if nothing else i hope people take that away from our conversation
0: absolutely and, and i'll share one really quick story that isn't at work but i think it shows how the collective works during covid Our school realized there were families that didn't have access to meals and food, and they did a food drive. It involved giving food, giving money. And for over a year, we fed 100 families, right? And some of us gave – some of us shopped. I was in the supermarket getting food. But the point is nobody wrote a giant check, but people wrote checks and 100 families were fed for over a year. That's the concept, right? And just take that and apply that to money, take that and apply that to the giving, and you get to exactly what it is. The impact is so large when we work together, and thank you for talking about this. It's so important.
1: Yeah, it's great. Well, listen, Doug, it's been a great conversation, and as you know, we end every show with the same last question, which is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success?
0: Well, I was looking forward to this question. It's a really wonderful thing about your podcast. And so let me first say, I certainly get joy from my family and my kids. I feel like I'd be a bad dad and husband if I didn't say that. (laughs) But the thing that I do most days that really puts me in the mindset, and I did it today, was riding on my Peloton. I know you've talked about it before on the podcast for you. When I'm on a ride, it's just me and the bike and the instructor and the music. It's the one time a day where all the worries of work and all the worries of life and all the things ahead of me sort of go away. I know it's good for my mental health, I know it's good for my physical health and notwithstanding the early commercials that sort of put Peloton in the wrong direction, I think it's a I think it's really a wonderful product that for many people like me made the pandemic and really the last year much more enjoyable. And plus, I've been able to better connect with people like yourself who are fellow riders. Right even riding together. And, and, and for those who don't ride, you may think we're just, uh, you know, you may think we're a little bit crazy, but it's really, it's been a great experience.
1: I agree. I think they've done a great job creating a community and a great product. The bike itself is fantastic and I think everything else around it is just as good, if not better. So that's one of my top and go-tos as well. So I appreciate you coming on. If people want to learn more about the Foundation of the Carolinas and learn more about charitable giving, We'll have this all in the show notes. What are some good places for them to go?
0: Absolutely. You can always go to our website, and again, that's in the show notes. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. I would say beyond that, as crazy as it sounds, just search. Search for what you find passionate about. Search for what interests you. If you want to know more about you know, charitable trusts, it's out there. But, but I would say if you want just one simple place, start at either our website or another local community foundation. Find out what they do and then get connected. And I'm certainly always happy to help people it's really a great thing to be able to connect people with their charitable passion. So thank you for having me and letting me talk about this today.
1: Oh, fantastic, Doug. Thanks for joining us and make it a great day. Thank you. I want to thank Doug Benson for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Doug has taken his legal background and found a way to use it to help families create a legacy and make a charitable impact on the world. There are so many ways, large and small, that allow people to create a legacy and having a career that allows you to help facilitate that is a rewarding one. I have known Doug for the better part of my entire life and have followed and admired his work and I hope you will too. Doug can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find him can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset make sure you visit our website at mitlinfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement.
0: The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly.
1: The charitable entities and or fundraising opportunities described herein are not endorsed by or affiliated with CWM LLC or its affiliates. The philanthropic interests are personal to us and are not reviewed, sponsored, or approved by CWM LLC.